It's time to ignite your soul and unlock your full potential. Join us on Beneath the Helmet, the podcast exploring firefighters' health and wellness. Hosted by retired fire chief Arjuna George, our podcast is the perfect place to start your journey towards becoming the best version of yourself. So come on, let's join the conversation and find out what sets your soul on fire. All right, welcome back, everyone. This is episode number 12. This episode number 12 is a bonus episode with my friend, fellow coach, podcaster, author, fire colleague, and mental health ambassador, retired firefighter, Keith Hanks. Keith Hanks is a retired firefighter and EMT that's dedicated over 21 years of service. Right now, Keith is on a mission and has dedicated his life to advocating for mental illness, substance, and alcohol abuse recovery, as well as suicide awareness. Through his work as a coach, podcaster, author, and speaker, Keith is smashing the stigma. He's also a national speaker, podcast personality, and published author. He's also a contributing author to Fire Engineering Magazine, Firefighter Nation, and the Volunteer Firefighter Magazine. Keith is also the lead author for the new book, Scars to Stars, Volume 3, which is expected to be released September 2023. Keith is also featured in a new documentary called First Responders in Crisis, which was expected to be released coming this October 2023. This year, Keith has also launched his own business called Traumatic Strength, LLC, which will be an education presentation-based entity based on teaching mental wellness and resiliency. Stay tuned for more updates from Keith at keithanks.com. This podcast is sponsored by Silver Arrow Coaching and Consulting, burnout resilience coaching for high performers, specializing in coaching firefighters and fire chiefs. For more information on how Silver Arrow Coaching can support you, reach out to www.silverarrowco.com. That's silverarrowco.com. My first book, Burnt Around the Edges, may also be of interest to you. You can get your copy about my story, Mastering Stress, My Burnout Journey, from Amazon, Google, and Apple Books. So sit back and enjoy this episode with Keith Hanks as he shares his story, being on the job, his childhood trauma, mental health, burnout, moral injury, and the power of how coaching should be in your mental health toolbox. This is a great conversation. And until next time, stay well. All right. Welcome back. We got Keith Hanks with us today. Very excited for this interview. I got the honor to be on Keith's show a little while ago and he interviewed me and now I get to return the favor and get to pick his mind in his brain. So welcome to the show, Keith. Thanks, Arjuna. Pleasure to be here. It's so nice to have the table starting to be on the other end of our conversation. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, you're no stranger to podcasts. You've been on several sharing your message, so I'm happy to have you join us today. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. So for those who don't know who Keith is, maybe share a little bit about your story, what brought you to where you are and why you're on a mission to share that it's okay to be not okay. Yeah, for sure. Well, in a uh, very averaged version, I was a 20, 21 year firefighter and EMT in the States here in New England, specifically Massachusetts, which is, you know, kind of cool. You know, New England has a pretty good tradition and reputation in the fire service for sure. And definitely the oldest part and where it has a lot of its origins, which was nice. And then my family in particular has its roots in the fire service dating back to the 1875 or so with a member of my family being on the job every generation, at least one member. So I grew up in a very traditionalized and, and very disciplined family, military and fire-based 
always knew I was going to be a firefighter. I wasn't always a choice per se. So I got on real young, uh, senior in high school. I became an on-call member with the department that had been in my family for a long time. And it was good. I grew up with, with tra childhood trauma. So I was a very unsure teenager. I didn't have a real identity. And so when I got on an 18, getting sworn in, getting my badge, and that night having a fire, actually, I had my identity thrown right at me. And that came confidence, camaraderie, and a circle of friends that I never knew I'd have. And I carried that for a very long time. And moving forward, I, I started working full-time shifts in the fire service, working full-time in private EMS, working in cities, larger cities out here, Worcester, Boston area, some of the outlying inner cities outside of Boston, and did a lot of bad stuff. And I was a black cloud, which... Mm. Some people enjoy in the fire service. You get a lot of fires. That can be a lot of fun. But I saw a lot of death. I saw a lot of really bad situations. And that weighed heavy combined with my childhood trauma. And I didn't know this. We're talking late 90s into the early odds. The word PTSD wasn't talked about. The soldiers coming back from the Middle East uh, were just starting to get diagnosed with it. But it was, if you saw combat, then you had PTSD, right? No one was really paying attention to first responders at that time. I didn't play out my career, had a lot of personal trauma during this time. And because of how escalated and how untreated and unresolved my trauma was, I ended up leaving the job in my mind prematurely in 2017, up to 21 years. And it was not, some people were like, oh, how was the retirement party and all this? How was the cake? It wasn't. And because of that, because of how all of it, not just my exit, but everything I went through. A couple of years before I left the job, when I got diagnosed, I became someone who was on a mission to change the outlook on it. And since leaving the job, I have just made it my mission of life to, to break down the stigma of, uh, of everything with mental health, whether it be PTSD, trauma, burnout, moral injury, all of it, to allow folks to be able to talk about it more. So maybe beyond just the suicides, maybe these career-ending events, marriage ending events, health ending events can be played down a little bit, can be not so much ended, but lessened. And so that's in a nutshell, without getting into too many specifics yet, that's kind of what I do and how I got to that point and why. Fantastic. It's quite the journey. Love to hear a bit about what you think about tradition, because I know your mm -hmm. family obviously is deeply entrenched in the fire service. So how did that impact your journey through mental health? the goods and the bads of tradition mm. and the culture of fire service. Uh, I, I'm all about tradition. I grew up watching my uncles ride rear step on the trucks, hip boots, long coats, mustaches, but there's the other parts. And those are the good parts, right? The good parts, the hardcore parts of the fire service that made a lot of the men and women as tough as they had to be, right? But then there's the other parts, the unhealthy parts, the bad parts of tradition that we don't talk about. And that was the coping skills. And I would watch my family, specifically my uncles who were on the job, cope with the job in very unhealthy ways, whether that was alcohol or maybe drugs or abuse. And that's a lot of a tradition we don't, we don't honestly talk about in the fire service. And there's a lot of it. And I ended up carrying on that tradition myself when I started suffering um, with untreated and unresolved trauma. I turned towards the bottle. I turned towards the pills. I turned towards whatever, a very unhealthy coping skills, which were all part of the, specifically the firehouse tradition, but first responder tradition. 
of, we don't talk about the don't ask, don't tell, right? Like the military used to be with certain things. It was there. It's always been there. Uh, but we didn't ask, we didn't talk about it. And a lot of lives were destroyed by the way men and women, even specifically myself handled this. And I liked the boast because I got on in the mid nineties that a lot of the good traditions I get to be part of riding rear step, wearing hip boots. You know, when I was a kid, I was actually the, the, one of the youngsters that would be in charge of bringing with an adult, obviously bringing beer back to the firehouse and putting it in the soda machine. <laughs> you know what I mean? That was, it's all funny to look back on, but yeah. a lot of these were small steps to what were bigger problems at firehouse when it comes to trauma and how our earlier generations were dealing with it. And looking back on it now, it's a lot of it was good opportunities. It was great to be part of a generation that, um, got to hold on to certain traditions, but to be at that age I'm at and the point I'm at in life to be able to see and be like, all right, some of these traditions we can change. And that a lot of that has to do with the aspect of trauma and what the job can do to us over time. Do you feel like we're making strides forward in changing that culture in a positive way and not destroying our history and our culture, but improving it? I think we are. And I think sometimes it's hard to see it. And I've had this conversation with like countless people. And I think overall, the fire service in particular, but first responder world, we have made huge leaps and bounds with acknowledging mental health, trauma, burnout, all of it in the last specifically five to 10 years. Uh, there are pockets. There are definitely areas specifically in the U.S., but everywhere in North America, there are definitely pockets where it is like, if you're having problems, then get off the job. You can't hack it. And where it is even, you have administration that maybe even shies away from it or discourages conversation. But I do believe, and I do believe this, overall, we have made big leaps and bounds. And that can be seen just in conferences. That can be seen in articles that are being printed informally, mustache wax and leather helmet based news forums and magazines. They're now talking about mental health and burnout and resources. And that to me, shows that we are changing without losing the roots of what our job really is. And that's to serve the public and to do a job that only less than 2% of the population can do. Yeah. That brings a smile to my face when you say that. Yeah. Yep. So going back to your, yeah, I totally agree. I believe we are making massive strides forward and podcasts like this and podcasts that you've been on sharing your message and we're just 1% each time, just itching away so at, at it. Yeah. Chipping away. I'd love to go back to your early retirement that you mentioned. What was it in your, what was it that made you retire? Was it something in your health? Was it forced upon you? Was that a higher person telling you what to do or how did that play out for you? It's always interesting to talk about this. A lot of people are like, oh yeah, after so many years of seeing really bad shit, I would be hard. It's like, it wasn't the calls. Mm. And to this day, I'll tell people. I could run into a burning building 24 hours a day. I could do CPR on dead babies, rescue the burned up grandmas, whatever you need me to do. It's the administrative part that was the straw that broke the camel's back for me. And with the fire service, because it, it, it ended two separate times. So I left the fire service in 2016 after 20 years. And that was because of, I was getting help, but I wasn't getting help fast enough. And the area that I was on, they had been like, all right, you should be better by now. Because we were talking about it then. So we, no one knew. It was a lack of education. So that was that form of administrative betrayal in a way that led me to leave the fire service. Private EMS, I hung on for another year. 
And I had made it very clear and I was very open and transparent as anyone who's ever heard me talk knows I am, uh, of what was going on. Hey, I have PTSD at times. It causes ripples in my life. I'm putting things into place to make sure that I'm taking healthier steps. I made my employer aware of this. And there was an incident that came up towards the end in 2017, where I was made to feel completely different than any other employee based on taking a day off. And to a point where I wasn't allowed to come back to work without a uh, doctor's note. And this had nothing to do. This wasn't me taking a day off, citing my PTSD. This wasn't me activating my FMLA because of my PTSD. This was simply being treated differently because a situation arose regarding a reaction of mine. And I was literally having my diagnosis held against me. And it was in that moment that I realized that it wasn't the job that I was upset at anymore. It wasn't what my duties were that I couldn't do. It was all the bullshit intertwined in it that administration was putting on me that I just couldn't tolerate anymore. And I had to make a very difficult decision in the fall of 2017 to leave a job that I thought I was going to have to get dragged out of when I was like 65. And here I was barely, not even 40 and had 21 years at that point. And I was like, no, nah, I'm done. I'm crispy. I am, I get no empathy, sympathy, feelings, emotions, or anything left for this job because of how I'm being treated by those that call themselves leaders. And that ended up causing me to leave. And I went on disability that, that fall. And that was hard. That was being a man and being in a type A job. It was hard. It was hard to go out on disability specifically, especially for PTSD. But that's what happened. You mentioned the word administrative betrayal. What does that necessarily mean for those who don't understand that terminology or where that would come from? So I think specifically in the first responder world, we put a big emphasis on a support from our leaders, from the leadership. And administration can look several different ways. You can have rank and file, right? You can have captains, lieutenants, chiefs, whatever. Uh, and then you can have just office administration, especially when you get into bigger departments or like private EMS, you don't always have it in a former rank, but as, as a grunt, I'll call myself a grunt. You look at your administration, you look at that leadership for support. You expect because of what you do for work and how selfless that your work is and what you're intending to do when you go into work every day, what you're willing to do, that the powers that be will always support you. And when they don't, and when they actually go so far against you to put you almost in harm's way or throw you under the bus, however that is, whether it's to safe face themselves or to make an example out of you or because lack of education or whatever, uh, that to me forms administrative betrayal where administrators are in that position to lead that organization, whether it's an apartment or ambulance organization, and they have an obligation to make the right decisions. And when they don't do that, based on whatever reason, specifically with mental health, that becomes a form of administrative betrayal. And these days you hear a lot about it, specifically in law enforcement, specifically in the US, uh, you hear a lot about it. And it's a big deal. And it tends to be a lot of, at least with males, it tends to be a lot of the reason why a lot of us have so many issues with our PTSD. Very interesting. Is there a difference between moral injury and administrative betrayal, or is it the same? I think there can be a difference. I think you could separate the two for sure. 
I think, I think you can have moral injury without having administrative betrayal. I think you probably have moral injury if you have administrative betrayal, but I think for sure you could have moral injury. I know probably even before I had the straw break, break the camel's back, there was times where morals were definitely already in play based on how much unresolved trauma I had and what I would question on the day to day when it came to my decisions. I think moral injury can be completely separate from that. Yeah, I know for firsthand experience, moral injury and the impact that it had on myself as well and administrative betrayal definitely was part of my early retirement as well. So I definitely mm. can feel you feel that pain for sure. Yep. And I and again, I think it's they can go hand in hand. However, I think one can exist without the other. I don't think they require the other to be there for one to take place. Right. So we've seen a bit of an improvement, but what could our leaders do to be more trauma-aware, trauma-informed, and respect this this change of administrative betrayal or more right. injury and kind of be more trauma-sensitive? What do you think there? What could be some measures we could take into place? I think the biggest thing, and most most I think most regions, most departments are taking steps with this, is education. I think at least down here in the States, a lot of... EMS recertification processes have now integrated mental health, where so much of your con ed now has to be involved and circulate around some, some sort of live mental health presentation, seminar, webinar, whatever it is, where you're learning about what this is beyond just reading at a textbook that there's PTSD, there's bipolar, there's schizophrenia, you know, beyond just learning about mental health and illness. You're learning specifically people, I think administrators and even rank and file folks need to learn more about what it looks like for us on the job and how given our history before the job, given our, what are we become as first responders on our personal life, how all of this plays in to how we deal with life, not just the job. It's not just the bad calls. It's our living conditions, our wages, it's our expectations from the public, from our families. Is all this weighs in on us. And I think by educating ourselves, by continuing to have these conferences, by having speakers come, by having podcasts like this, I think education is really the only way. It's, it's how we changed everything else that needed to change, specifically the fire service, all the safety things, all the things we were doing incorrectly. Love it. I think there's definitely a challenge with today's leaders and mental health. I think there's some serious champions out there that are in their leadership roles. But I also think there's leaders that are maybe feeling stuck and hurting themselves. Um, you know, they feel that they can't stand up and express their emotions or their vulnerabilities because they are the leader. Any thoughts there on how to get that message through to them that it is safe and that the firefighters actually want to hear their leader speak about that? I think the unknown becomes a fear. And if you don't know, you don't know. And if you, all you know is what it's like to live with this without talking about it, thinking about what it could be like to talk about it or to embrace it can be horrific. And before I started becoming so open about it, I lived the way I did because of that fear. I lived, which I told myself was my comfort zone. It wasn't. It was actually holding me back. And it wasn't until I came out about everything. I owned everything. I had to own everything that I had been through, good, bad, or indifferent, on the job, off the job, 
childhood, after the job, whatever it was. And it only caused me to grow. And again, if you don't know, you don't know. That's, I think, where a lot of current administrators, leaders who maybe want to get hung up on because change is awful. And in the fire service, we hate it. We actually challenge it as much as we can to not let it happen. And, but in the end, it can save lives. And it's proven that if we do discuss this and we do have an open door, if you will, policy when it comes to mental health and trauma in the first responder world, that it will save lives. And we are seeing that by not talking about it, uh, thousands are taking their own lives. And so I think it's really fear. I think it's change is horrifying. And I think until you embrace it, until you can get a sense of what it feels like, what it tastes like to discuss these things, to see a good change outside of what has been in the past, sometimes bad or whatever regarding it, I think people are going to be resistant to it. You called yourself a, gr a grunt. How would a grunt look at a chief fire chief that was being vulnerable, open, transparent about their own mental health challenges? What would you personally either what you think you would say or what have you said in the past of those kind of people? I think what I've said in the past probably wouldn't be the most appreciated because in the past I was definitely thick scold and uh, complacent where I was being miserable. And uh, knowing what I know now, I can be honest with you. I wish when I got on in 1996, I wish there was a leader out there who was embracing this, like people like you and I are right now. I wish there was a chief, a captain 27 years ago that I could have, that could have been talking like we are, that I could have went to him and like, Hey man, I'm in the suck hurting because maybe the next 20 something years didn't have to go the way they did. And I think there's a lot of impressionable, I don't want to use the word young because not every newer person on the job is young, but there's a lot of impressionable people out there that are looking for that leader mm. who is open, who is accepting of this, who is willing to hear people out and maybe direct them to the avenues of help that they need. And I think the more that are out there, the more grunts uh, will be willing to embrace that. And then grunts will eventually be leaders. And that's what this is all about. I do a lot of what I do because it's not just our generation that may still be on the job. Now it's not even the ones who got on five years ago. Yeah. It's the ones coming down that are going to be looking at the leaders who are now living a career where they do embrace talking about mental health, where they're going to come into the job knowing that this is just part of it. We're going to talk about this. We're going to embrace it. It's going to be part of your healthy career. That's what this really is about is it's changing this culture. Just being like, okay, so we got to worry about cancer on the fire service, right? So we're going to, we're going to cause stable mental health too, because it's just as much of a concern where it's not even a question anymore. That's exciting. That's exciting, isn't it? Like it is. that we can see the next generation being molded and formed right now for our next leaders. And yeah, that's the hope. It. I love it. That's the hope. So what were some of your biggest challenges when you were going through the fire service and experiencing PTSD? What were the most challenging parts for you? And what do, what tools did you use to support you through those times? I think the most challenging part about it was not understanding why it was affecting me so much. Cause I was never told that, that it was, that it would obviously growing up in a family, like I did, I knew bad stuff was going to happen. I knew I was going to see bad calls. That wasn't a surprise. I embraced that actually. I knew it was going to happen. And what was challenging was going through the day to day and dealing with all this stuff sitting up there. 
and not having an avenue to put it somewhere in a healthy way. And again, going back to those old traditional coping mechanisms that weren't so healthy, I used booze, alcohol, drugs, women, would be to get me through it. Did it work? On the surface, sure. It got me through my days and whatnot, but uh, the challenging part was knowing I knew I wasn't doing good. I knew I wasn't. Come to find out, others knew. I, I thought I hit it for years, but the year now being in recovery and living a healthier life, people have, people close to me back in the day, I've been like, oh no, it was, something was up. And I think I used hope a lot and it's hard because at times it felt like there was no hope, especially with the dark times when I would have my suicide attempts, there was often a lack that almost felt like a lack of hope. But I think what got me through as long as it got me, as long as I did get through, it was hope because hope is always there. You just have to sometimes really look for it. It's that gloved hand up against the mask. Sometimes it's really hard to see it, but it is always there. And I held on to that even in the darkest times when I was completely by myself with this shit, I held on to hope. I did a podcast interview a couple of weeks ago with Rob Leithen, which will be out mm. shortly. And he talked about people around him in the fire service knew that he was struggling, but never said anything. And you just brought that up as well. What would have changed for you if firefighter on the A shift said, Hey, Keith, it looks like you're struggling. Can I support you somehow? What would have changed for you? It's tough to say. It's tough to say. There was blatant times where help was definitely not offered. The opposite was almost enforced. Um, but then there was times looking back where there was definitely people who were inquiring as to what was really going on. Hey, you're not just an asshole. What's really up? And that was just in the service. Because up, up when I was still in the job, I kept a lot of stuff hidden. People knew some of the obvious things, some of the bigger events in my life people knew about. But people didn't know how much I was holding on to. But people, a lot, I've come to find out, a lot of people did. Rob told you, a lot of, I found out years later, a lot of people were like, no, there was definitely something there and I just didn't know how to approach you. And I guess... Being in it back then, I don't know. I'd like to think that I would have embraced that that help, but given the way the culture was, especially for me back then and where I worked, I can't honestly say I would have broken down and accepted that help then. I don't. And I honestly believe that, and I hate the expression, everything happens for a reason. I, I hate the wording. I don't like it, but I truly believe we're all where we have to be at any given moment. And I truly feel... And as hard as it is sometimes to say that I had to go through everything I had to go through to get where I'm at right now. And that sometimes sucks to say, but I don't think I would have embraced the help back then. And that's probably why it wasn't offered in the correct way then. Yeah, I agree. I changed my mindset as well as definitely not a victim of burnout and operational burnout and stress and trauma. I am now seeing it as a gift. And that's kind of part of my presentation is it's a gift. What yep. burnout gave to me made me where I am today. So it's, yeah, if you can embrace that's a powerful mindset shift to have for sure. It's all about growth. It is 100%. You've mentioned childhood trauma quite a bit. Um, did you know when you were going into the fire service that you had childhood trauma or was that something you discovered later on? I always knew. You always knew. I always knew. But I played it off. And that's the weird thing about childhood trauma, especially, I always say this, especially as a male, it's, 
as a guy, it's hard to accept that someone did something like that to you. Not that it is as a woman either. I'm not saying it's any easier, but as a culture and as a society, we tend to accept females being abused more than men. So as a male first responder, I played it off and I almost at times made it imaginary, like it didn't happen, but it was there. And I know that because of it happening, like I said in the beginning, I didn't really have an identity. I didn't know who I was. Uh, and when I got handed that badge and that uniform, suddenly I was told who I was. And so kind of let go of it or I ignored it. I wouldn't say I let go of it. I ignored it. I ignored that childhood trauma, but it was always there and it was collecting all this other trauma along the way. And it was building and amassing this army that would eventually work against me because I ignored it. And that's why I always call it unresolved trauma. Because until you deal with this shit, until you grab this bull by the horns, it is unresolved. And that could be all of it. Childhood, personal, job stuff, off the job, all of it. And so I ignored it. It was always there. It was always there. And I always knew it was there. And it answered so many questions along the way, but I refused to accept those answers. Yeah, the picture that came to mind was a snowball going down a hill, getting bigger and bigger, collecting snow and ended up to be a snowman at the bottom. So. With a bunch of nails in it too. And, yeah. yeah. Garbage and gravel and rocks and yeah, sticks and hate and anger. And yeah. I definitely found in my fire service career, a lot of responders, firefighters with childhood trauma. You think there's some correlation there between childhood trauma and people who want to join the fire service and that culture? I do. So I've been part of quite a bit of research and different studies, three bigger ones, both here in the States and one out in England, uh, regarding trauma and suicide. Specifically, one of them was regarding male firefighters. This was done through McLean's outside of Boston. And they surveyed a hundred men who had either had diagnosed PTSD or fit all the criteria for it. And over 75% of them also stated childhood trauma and almost all of that was sexual trauma. Wow. And that's one study and that's just who's willing to say it. And over the last two or three years that I've been going around telling my story in this country and getting on podcasts and everything else, it's once people feel comfortable with you, once a man feels comfortable with you, if you're a guy who openly talks about this, you'll be surprised how many admit what happened to them when they were a kid. And I do think there's a correlation. Do I think it's the only reason why men and women become first responders? I don't. I do believe, because I know looking back now, I can tell you that for a lot of the reasons why I got on beyond tradition, beyond wanting to help was because I felt that there was no one there to help me when I was a kid. And I refused to go into my adult life, not trying to help people who needed it. So that always played a big factor in why I did a lot of what I did as a first responder. Powerful. So I, I agree. I definitely think there's some correlation. I don't have any stats or anything to prove that, but it's my gut feeling for sure. Yeah. You mentioned... I think talking to your supervisor, some of about the ripples, you manage your PTS through ripples and goods and bads. What are some of the strategies and tactics that you use today to manage those ripples? So the biggest thing that I learned and the story of how I learned it is funny, at least in my mind, I use mindfulness and meditation, very mild form of meditation. I can't fully kumbaya yet. I'm not there, but I definitely use meditation and mindfulness. And I learned this from a three-tour Marine who is one of my mm -hmm. closest friends. And this is someone I've done, I think four, three or four 
speaking gigs with at this point is a Marine who has, you know, had to shoot people. This is someone who is been on that spectrum of life. And he's the one who taught me how to meditate and use mindfulness to corral these ripples. Just take everyday life and live in the now. And that has been the only way that I have been able to use any other coping skills. Now, it is not the only thing I use. I use a lot of different things. And, but mindfulness and the meditation, living in the now specifically, is what I have learned to be able to keep those ripples from causing other ripples or from causing those ships to, to turn over or whatever they may be, to be able to get through the other events that continue to happen because life goes on, right? Just because you deal with your traumas, just because you get through something horrible doesn't mean nothing else bad is going to happen in your life. Matter of fact, the worst things may be yet to come. And because of that, you have to figure out a way to correctly deal with these. And that is one of the things that I use to correctly deal with them is mindfulness and meditation. Yeah, I'm thinking, once again, I'm picturing the mindfulness and that ripple is when you're doing mindfulness meditation, it's separating that distance between the next ripple. Yep. So it's giving you a bigger peak or a bigger valley to, to be in and kind of be in a good state. Yep. So what were some of the, not tricks, but techniques that he showed you that resonated with you as a person who maybe have never done meditation or mindfulness before? Uh, the biggest thing he introduced me to was a book. And that book was called Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself. And it's by Dr. Joe Dispenza. And it is oh, an yes. incredible book. It, it spells it out. It spells out how to meditate. And it really spells out why the brain can appreciate meditation and mindfulness. And I'm one of those sort of engineer geared minds. I need to know how something works. And once I know how something works, if I like it, I'll utilize it. And I'll utilize it to the max. After reading that book, I was really able to put these into play. Now, I'm human, and sometimes I don't always use these when I really need to, but I can tell you over the last two years now that when I do, I have a much better outcome. I experience higher levels of growth and healing uh, from a situation, and I'm able to mitigate a situation to the point where it doesn't become another trauma, where it doesn't become another a notch in the belt, so to speak. It becomes just another day. It becomes another, oh, that sucked. And, or oh, that was great. Or maybe I was able to see something in a different perspective, embrace the positivity in it. And so that has led me to be able to use other tools and to experience at times monumental growth uh, in my journey. Yeah, you pretty much just defined what it's like to be resilient, right? When you're yeah. doing that mindfulness, you're going through all that. So you're, next time you come across another trauma, you're able to be more resilient and navigate through that, right? Absolutely. So what's the difference between meditation and mindfulness? Is there a difference or is it the same in your thoughts? So I think you can be mindful without having to actually meditate. Mm. And so one of the things I read a lot of, and I always butcher the name, but I think it's Thich Nhat Hanh, the Buddhist mm. monk that wrote yes. a bunch of books. Yep. Read a bunch of his stuff. Amazing. He actually just passed in the last year. Very gifted writer, and he spells out a lot of things too. And one of the things that he talks, he harps on big time is mindfulness and forgiveness, but mindfulness specifically. And where I think it differs in meditation is for the most part, meditation, you tend to be sedentary. You tend to actually stop what you're doing and you meditate, you focus on the moment. Mindfulness is one of those things you can practice in anything you're doing. 
And he actually explains how to do it while you're walking, while you're eating, while you're drinking tea, while you're doing dishes, while you're washing your car, while you're talking to your loved one. And it's part of what kind of goes into a lot of using mindfulness can be brought right back into everything with like peer support, when it comes into even like coaching, when it comes into embracing those conversations, with being curious, with being really thoughtful and empathetic with talking with another human being, mindfulness really comes into that because you're embracing the moment and you're feeling everything that it is. And I try to do that as often as I can. And that's where I think it separates it from meditation, where meditation is something you set aside to do. And mindfulness is something you can constantly be doing in every activity that you partake in. Love it. Love it. What's a key indicator that you're not in the present now for yourself? I think one of the biggest giveaways for me is when I start harping on little things Mm. and my wife is one of the first to pick up on that as our spouses typically are, especially these days where she's seen such growth and positive changes in me. When I start harping on things that I don't harp on anymore, whatever it is, it doesn't really matter what it is. Usually something pretty small and even some of the bigger things don't affect me anymore. When I start harping on those, it's time for me to start getting back to what is important. And what is important is living in the now and practicing that mindfulness. And that's usually the first sign is that I'm, I'm gone off in left field and I'm upset because my neighbor's mowing his lawn at 7.30 at night instead of 4.30 in the afternoon. You know what I mean? Something like that, where it can be like, oh, because he's mowing his lawn at 7.30 at night and because of the dew point this time at night, I can actually smell the yard clippings. And that's actually soothing to me. You know what I mean? It sounds corny, but it's all relative. And so when those little things are spiking in Keith's life, those tend to be the indications. Right. Yeah. That's a great example. Keith, you mentioned a a second ago about forgiveness. I'd love to dig in that a little deeper. Have you forgiven people in your life that caused you harm or have you forgiven yourself or is that still a work in progress? Because I think that's a challenging one for a lot of people to navigate. It is. And there's a little bit of both. Uh, both forgiveness of others and forgive some forgiveness of myself. And I think it's easier specifically for us first responders to forgive others before we'll forgive ourselves. And uh, that is definitely something I have, I'm challenged with quite a bit is I have made, because forgiveness doesn't require the presence of, of the person who wronged you, right? You can make peace with that situation without that person being in your life, which means that if that person is no longer in your life because you've separated, however it is, you can make peace. If that person has passed on, died, and you haven't had a chance to physically make that forgiveness with them, you still can. Peace with yourself, forgiveness with yourself is a lot more challenging because you have to face parts of yourself that maybe you don't want to. And uh, even with all that I do these days and all the transparency that I show, there is still quite a bit of forgiveness in myself that I need to make. Forgiveness and just being human which is sometimes a hard pill to swallow is one of those. And, but there have definitely been points of forgiveness with others, which I have made huge strides with, but forgiveness in myself is something that, you know, I still fight with quite a bit. I still have work in that department for sure. Do you feel a sense of relief when you forgive people or what's your feeling when you go through that process? I think there's always, I always look at all this as growth. I do. And I think there is always a sense of relief when you're able to relinquish anguish, when you're able to relinquish pain, anger, hate, 
all of that, that comes with holding a grudge or holding holding on to something that doesn't need to be there. I think there's always a sense of relief. And I have definitely experienced that with having forgiveness with people. Now, this is whether I've done it physically face-to-face with someone and mended a bridge or just on my own made it good in my mind. There is always relief with that. And I think that's important going back to forgiveness with yourself. I think it's important that we find that forgiveness with ourselves, with different things that we hold ourselves accountable for that maybe we don't need to be. I think it's important to find that because we should love ourselves. We, I think self-love is number one important in order to be a genuine human being and to be able to give love to others. Uh, and so I think that's huge to get that relief as well. I couldn't agree more there. Recently in a magazine, you wrote an article called The Proactively Fit Firefighter, uh, mm-hmm. Firefighter Nation magazine. You talk about coaching and how it's supported you and helped you grow, like you say so many times in your podcast here. What would be some of the benefits that you found personally and maybe share why you think other firefighters, responders should look at coaching as an option? Yeah, no, I, I was very impressed with what coaching could do because it was a very, it's a very new modality, especially for first responders. And overall in society, we don't hear a lot about it. And for me, one of the biggest things was getting a different perspective and getting coach, if you will, literally as a coach. In my corner, that was like, it's just like a football team. It's that driving force to hold you accountable to things, right? And having this driving force of accountability and a different perspective goes to what we are, who we are as a culture of first responders, right? Like we hold ourselves at such a high level. Our accountability is at a level 10 all the time, right? Like we, if something goes wrong, we hold on to that, right? And so we hold ourselves accountable and with... The coaching part, I started looking at things that I wanted to do instead of, oh, I really want to do this. Why aren't you doing them? Mm. What is holding you back? What would it look like to do that? And I never really approached things that way. And beyond the job, beyond you know, wanting to get a better education or certification on the job, it, it was in life, which our lives affect how we operate on the job. And to have someone in your corner was pushing you and holding you accountable for making these great, whatever changes they were, health, finances, recreation, family, job, career, whatever it was, these changes to hold, to have someone who's holding you accountable and to push you, uh, to help you see different perspectives, it led me to make changes in my life that I may not have done on my own. And I continue to use what I learned as a coach and being coached through the things I do these days. What were some of the greatest milestones that you attribute to coaching? Uh, I think one of the biggest ones with, was my journey with my physical health, mm-hmm. honestly. So in the beginning of, or the tail end of 2021, I was, I was a pretty hefty guy. I've always been a bigger guy, but I was pretty hefty at about 300 pounds. And at 6'5", I could hide it well to a point, but now in my mid-40s, it was getting harder. And I, I told myself, and everything else I was doing, my mental health, I need to do something with my physical health, they're all tied in, everything. Everything's tied in. And uh, having a conversation with the person who was help, helping to coach me, it was one of those things where it was like, what's holding you back? What's, and it was change. We talked about this earlier. I was fearful of change. I don't know what it's like to not be a big guy. Hmm. I've gone my entire adult life being over 250 pounds. And through using my coach and using what I learned as a coach and everything else, I was able to, to shift my focus from, I don't know what it's going to be like to be 
a different person physically to, I want to know what it's like to be a different person physically. And since then I've lost 65 pounds and gotten in probably the best shape of my adult life. And I attribute that to what I gained through coaching. And that's just one example. We, in the fire service specifically, but in the first one world, we harp, we try to harp, we should be harping more on physical health. And that's just one example of what I was able to do because of it. And it's so important. It's so important to have a different perspective because we sometimes get narrow-minded and almost like a tunnel vision with certain things that because of what we do as first responders, maybe we can't do other things in our life to benefit us. And I, by us, I mean me. Sometimes we get thinking that's selfish. And by having a coach in our lives who can help you see these perspectives and push you and hold you accountable and help you see the different ways that things can be done, you can achieve some things that maybe you couldn't do on your own. Yeah, I think there's a bit of a myth out there that you have to have a problem to go see a coach, to hire a coach. What would be your response to that? So I think there's a misnomer for sure. And I think a lot of people attribute coaching to therapy. It's not. So like therapy, you typically, you go to a therapist. Now, I think everyone should have a therapist. I honestly, I do. I think everyone should have a therapist and a coach. I Love still it. have a therapist. Yep. And I use what I learned through coaching to benefit my therapy. However, with therapy, you typically go because you have a problem, quote unquote problem. I don't like to call it a problem, but a condition, an issue, something that needs a resolution. You don't need to have that. You, we have life. We have life. That's why they're called life coaches. And I think that the misnomer is that, well, I don't really have a problem. Do you maybe want to take a vacation at some point? Or do you maybe want to get back into biking? Or maybe do you want to be able to be, have a different perspective on your teenager's life or whatever it is, things that you could work on. Anything can be worked on at any time. You can always better yourself. And I yeah. think as first responders, we think that we can only better what we do as a first responder. And that's what we harp on. I got to get that next certification. I got to go to that next elevator rescue class. I got to whatever, pumps and hydro, whatever it is. But we tend to forget the other parts of life that are so important to not only our personal life, but our impact, our careers, that you can work on anything in your life with a coach. And I have, and I know several other people who have that had made leaps and bounds in, in their growth and healing eventually with mental health because of it. We made a great point because I think there's so many people out there that, yeah, look at coaching as a, a therapy. Like you say, you have to have a problem. Yeah. And I think that's the myth I'm trying to bust right now myself is to get the message out there that, you know, coaching is there to support you grow, excel, move forward, get 1% better each day. And it doesn't have to necessarily be that you're broken. I think it's really, it's a professional development tool. And like you said, with the getting good at the hydraulics or <laughs> cracking doors or nozzle management, those are all skills that don't really get us in trouble very often. What usually gets us in right. trouble is our personalities, communication styles, conflicts. Yeah. Selling ourselves short. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I honestly, I'm a firm believer that departments and organizations ought to offer uh, coaching as, Hey, we'll pay for your gym membership. Like insurances do for you go to the gym. We're going to pay three quarters of your gym memberships here. I think coaching ought to be part of that, whether it's an insurance thing or an apartment thing, there's such a benefit to what coaching could do, especially with leadership, skill building, self-confidence and everything else that departments have nothing but to gain from setting someone to a coach. hundred percent. 
Yeah. Yep. G- gaining a coach into your organization will do nothing but improve it. Guaranteed. 100%. Guaranteed. Yeah. How about for firefighters that are going through mental health challenges? Is coaching a good option for them to add to their toolkit? I think having coaching period is good for anyone. I caution people from thinking that a coach is going to help them specifically resolve a traumatic incident or a specifically a mental health crisis. They are not. That's not what coaches is for. However, when you can mitigate and navigate the avenue of life using a coach with different facets of your life, your mental health is only going to get better. And for me, which is why I use a therapist in in conjunction with what I learned with coaching, because now I can go into my therapy uh, with what I've learned and how to communicate because coaching is all about conversation, right? It's all about listening. I'm able to go into my conversations with my therapist now and gain so much more. What would have taken three or four sessions I can do in one. And so the coaching benefits mental health, I guess, in an indirect way. And not that you're necessarily going to go to your coach and talk about the worst call of your career. And I don't really advise doing that because you, you may cause someone else to need a therapist himself. However, what you can learn through coaching with the goals you can achieve in different parts of your life, you're only going to be able to directly draw lateral to a healthier mental being. And that's exactly what I've done. And I know other people who have done the same. And I strongly encourage anyone who's even questioning uh, doing so to do it. It's worth it. It really is. Yeah, that's a nugget you just revealed there of how coaching can help mental health and expedite the process of working with a therapist or mental health professional. That's a nugget right there for sure. Absolutely. I'll be the first to say that it is not a quote unquote mental health modality. It is a tool in the mental health toolbox for sure, which can uh, create huge growth and healing potential in any other avenue or modality you choose to use to get through mental health challenges. Love it. So to finish us off, Keith, what would be one key message that you'd love our listeners to embrace, hear, understand, and walk away with today? What would be your number one message to send out? The biggest thing is just never to give up. You can never give up. And life has thrown me a lot of curveballs. And there was times where it seemed like I gave up. At least I thought I gave up. And I wasn't. And I am glad I never did. Because life, as oftentimes as it can really suck, it is so great to be able to live it. And for those out there that are struggling, that are questioning their own existence, uh, you do matter. You do belong here. And there is a greater reason that you may never know. But don't ever give up. Back to your hope. There's hope. Hope. Yeah. There is hope. Yeah, love it. How can people learn more about Keith and connect with you if they want to? and learn more about your journey and your presentations and your soon to be released book, right? (laughs) Yeah. A couple books, actually. I'm in the process of writing my own book. We're editing that right now. It's a lot of information. Yep. Great. I am part of another book that I'm authoring a chapter in. It's called Scars of Stars, Volume 3. That'll be out May 22nd. We've got some documentaries that are on the horizon here, one of which should be coming out hopefully this summer. I'm not going to get too overzealous with that, but uh, but basically, I'm on all the major social medias. I just recently got off TikTok. It was just too much to try to do. But Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, 
I have a YouTube channel out there. You just search my name, look for my ugly mug, and I'm up there. You can reach out on my emails at khanksmz78 at gmail. And I'm trying to build a website right now, and I will be starting my own independent podcast again because I love doing them so much. I had a lot of fun with the Resilient Responder. I will be formulating my own again, so that'll be coming out hopefully at some point this summer. So there's all sorts of ways to get hold of me, and I'm always looking to network with other people who are like-minded, so feel free to reach out. Awesome. Uh, you mind giving a quick little overview of what kind of presentations you share? Is there like a specific keynote that you is on your your go-to list? So my presentations kind of, they're all basically the same for the most part. I shifted it in years, right? So after after you do a few of them, you realize what works and what doesn't. And I realized that just telling war stories just isn't where it's at. And it worked for a little bit. It helped me heal. Uh, but I tell a little bit of my story. And depending on how much time I have, I go on everywhere from 45 minutes to two and a half hours for presentations. I give a little bit of my story to give some background. But the big thing I, I really focus on is what worked, what didn't work, and what hope is a resiliency. And to really focus on how departments and individuals can bring this into their lives to be, be successful. And I'll be doing that. Uh, again, I got a few this year already lined up, but I'll be doing it in Maryland in June at the Maryland State Firefighters Association Conference. Looking forward to that. That's going to be cool. I'll actually be able to do a book signing for this book that's coming out in May, which is a new thing for me. That's, awesome. I'm excited about that. So yeah, it's all about just showing what works and how to do it and how you can implement it on either a department level uh, or individual level and giving people tools that maybe they don't know uh, are there and available. Very cool. Yeah. Do you have a confirmed book title yet? On my book? Yeah, that you can share. I tell you, it's tough. I keep going back and forth on titles. We're in a limbo mode right now with it yeah. because we've realized that things have changed. You're constantly healing. And I always say, I'm constantly growing and healing. And so now the book is changing in its direction and overall theme. The book is becoming more an in-depth viewing of what my presentation is, essentially. So the title has changed. So I don't actually have a good answer for that. Where you got to have a powerful two-stage part, right? Yeah. Negative, but positive ending sort of thing. And so we've been dealing with some back and forth of that with the editors and figuring out uh, what would really grab people's attention. Very cool. You're going through a world of change, aren't you? Yeah. Every day, man. <laughs> well, Keith, honestly, it's a total honor to even just get to know you over the past six months, a year communicate with you a couple of times. You're a stellar firefighter leader in the world of mental health and spread that message. Uh, I really, truly am honored to, to know you and to know another firefighter that's vulnerable, honest, open, transparent, provides me with some hope. So I appreciate that. Thank you, Arjuna. That means a lot. And I'm sure you get this in this stage of mental health advocacy we don't often get a lot of feedback so when you do it's appreciated and thank you very much for your words yeah. keep up the great work it's been a real honor to have you on the podcast to everyone listening stay well thank you for tuning in to beneath the helmet we hope that this podcast has provided you with valuable insights into the world of firefighters health and wellness Remember, caring for your physical, mental, and spiritual well-being is crucial to achieving optimal performance. Join us next time on Beneath the Helmet for more inspiring conversations. Until then, stay well.